Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Beyond the Cover. I am one of your hosts, John Robb, joined here by my ever-wonderful, fabulous co-host, Jeff Ayers. Jeff, how you doing? Doing good. Hope you're having a great evening. Yes, yes, we are having a good evening. Um, and we want to remind everybody, of course, that all of our shows are brought to you by Kensington Books, so please make sure you visit kensingtonbooks.com for more information. And, of course, Suspense Magazine, and visit suspensemagazine.com, where you will find out all about our shows, magazine, all the interviews and articles that we have going on. Um, we just posted uh, Dean Kuntz's and Boyd Morrison and Dana Ridenour are on the show. So make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes or Spotify or both, whatever you want to do. Um, but tonight, Jeff, we are going to be joined here by Wendy Hurd, and she is the author of The Kill Club. Uh, very excited to be able to talk to her. So without any further ado, why don't we just bring Wendy on right now? So, Wendy, thanks so much for coming on. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Well, again, yeah, we want to thank you so much for coming on. Um, you know, I got the Kill Club. I believe it was back um, around August or maybe September. I think you emailed me first around August, and then I was like, oh, you know, we're booked up. And then Justine emailed me, and I was like, that's Wendy. I remember her. And so I was like, yeah, 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 let's get her on. So the Kill Club, you've got to tell us a little bit about what you've got going on in here. Yeah, so the Kill Club is my it's my favorite. I know that was a weird intro. And, one. Um, yeah, no, <laughs> it's about um, it's about a murder club. It's about a murder trade program that is helping people who have been failed by various systems and have not been able to, you know, to get justice for one of many reasons. Um, and there is a sort of underground vigilante murder club that is kind of doing a matchmaking process where, like, for example. If you had someone that you needed to get rid of, I might take care of them for you, John. And then Jeff, you might take care of mine. You know, so it's like a it's like a relay. Um, and then the um, the book is about a young woman who gets drafted into this and the the shenanigans that ensue. Well, I, I was sort of uh, getting the strangers on a train vibe, and um, I, I really like that aspect of it. Um, but I'm curious. Um, I want, I want to hear more about the character of Jazz, because Jazz fascinated me. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I I was nervous to write Jazz because, you know, I, I really was looking to, I don't know, I mean, I was studying the book in L.A., which is my hometown, and I really wanted to write someone who had certain things about L.A. that I sort of love and that I feel like don't get enough, uh, like, screen time, I guess, page time, like, you know, L.A. is a city that gets a lot of screen time, and yet if you're from here, you can watch, you know, 100 movies or read 100 books set in L.A. and never see what feels like your hometown. And so when I was writing jazz, I really wanted to write someone who, you know, first of all, there were certain things I needed her to, to be going through for plot reasons, and then other things I wanted to characterize her. Like I wanted her sense of humor to really be like, you know, something that reminded me of L.A.'s, you know, kind of signature sense of humor and these types of things. And so she's a young woman. She's uh, she's a product of the foster system. You know, she's, you know, grown up poor. And she's working at Trader Joe's. She actually works at the Trader Joe's that I used to work at. So yeah. I got to write in some, like, actual people that I used to work with at Trader Joe's just for fun. That's um, cool. Yeah, and some of my old Trader Joe jokes, you know, like the I'd like to speak to the manager haircut and all those things I got to, I got to throw in there. <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. But yeah, you know, I, I really wanted to write someone who felt authentic to LA in a way that we don't see a lot, you know, and I, I don't know, I hope I succeeded. I love jazz. Now, amazing character. Yeah, now, now of course, you. now this is your second book. The first one was um, Hunting mm-hmm. Annabelle, which came out in 2018, and now you have The yes. Kill Club. So you're, so mm-hmm. you kind of come out of the gate here with kind of two standalones. Where was Hunting Annabelle and The Kill Club? Was was it the plots or was it the characters that you kind of wanted to explore first? And are you thinking about maybe doing a series, or do you think you might be just staying in standalones? I always be open to doing sequels if, if it seemed warranted. You know, I've only really ever done standalones. I've never done a series. But I think with both of them, I kind of like to leave the endings not open, but I don't know. I like to throw an extra plot toward the end of Act 3 and just kind of keep you guessing a little bit. So um, definitely both would work as as a series. I just haven't ever had that experience before. Um, and, yeah, like with Hunting Annabelle, definitely the character of Sean was what started that book. And the whole book is really like kind of a, a little bit of a character exploration of Sean. But with Kill Club, um, that book was really all about the plot. Like I had started with this plot and I started doing interviews actually. The book is about people who, you know, have no other options and so they turn to, you know, this murder trade program. And I wasn't sure if I was worried about it not reading as believable. So I started doing interviews just to see I had this feeling that if I started asking around, there would be more people who would be willing to join this club than you might think. And so I started asking around, just asking a lot of different people if I could interview them, if they had anybody in their lives that would be someone um, that they would want the Kill Club for. Um, And I ended up collecting like dozens of victim statements and it got really into these interviews and that's sort of what the Kill Club started with. It actually started with a news story that made me want to do these interviews. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, well, so all of the question accounts of, oh, in the ahead. Kill Club are true stories fictionalized. So all of the okay. victims and all of the people who are targeted, those are all based on real real people. Cool. Yeah. That's what I call research. Um, <laughs> You set um, your first novel, Hunting Annabelle, in the 80s, and I'm wondering, why did you do that? That's a freaking great question, because that was a lot of work. I was like a small child. I didn't – it, it was totally – I love the 80s. It was a lot of work. Yeah, um, I mean, I was 10 years – I was born in 1970, so my teenage years were all in the 80s. So if I got um, anything wrong, you're going to be the person who's going to be able to explain that. And I worked so, I don't know. Hard. That decade's still kind of a daze to me, but I remember it was the age of excess. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Talk about interviews. That book was so much research because of the uh-huh. 80s. And, but really, it all started, the 80s all started for me with this one piece of the plot, the one key element of the plot that made me realize that kind of brought it all into focus was that these juvenile records that Sean has, that they have to, that the cops are like, we're going to get your juvenile records. And it occurred to me that if I said it in the 80s, the journey to getting those records would be a little bit more complicated than like just click, click, clicking. And then once I thought of that, I thought everything would be more interesting in the 80s because he'd be looking at people in phone books and he'd be traveling to people's houses and he'd be, you know, calling 411. Like he wouldn't just be like, Google this, Google that. And right, so, right. Um, and then, but Sean was so perfect for the 80s also. Like it just kind of all came together in one like aha moment. Once I thought the 80s, it was just perfect. Nice. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 
So are, are you more of an organic writer or do you really, are you a plotter? I am a beat sheeter. I grew up in LA and I had a lot of screenwriter friends. So I kind of got uh, introduced to the whole save the cat method of beat sheeting and now I've kind of adapted it. I've used a, I've used a bunch of different, uh, like I, I used anatomy of story. I've used a bunch of different tools. And I've ended up working, I work in a four-act structure. Um, okay. So I cut act two in half, and I'll beat it out into four acts. And, uh, and yeah, so that's kind of my, my thing I'm working with right now. So yeah, I'm a planner, James. but I kind of, like, just wing it up to the next plot point. Like, I'll plan the major plot points, but I won't, like, sure. scene plan like screenwriters do. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah, Stephen James and I have had several conversations about the three-act system, of course, which they use a lot. Mm-hmm. And, and, he, and he's one of those, I don't know if you know who Stephen is, he wrote a book called Story Trump Structure, and he's always about mm-hmm. the story. He's the only guy I know, and Jeff will attest to this, that has, literally has a master's degree in storytelling. He got it at Middle Tennessee State or East Tennessee State, one of the two. Um, yeah, and, and I think that, you know – and he always talks about plotting and organic too. And that's kind of why I always like to ask, because I like to see, like, where's the author brain going? Is, it, is, the, is, is the story taking you along with it, or have you kind of already figured it out and now you're just kind of filling in the blanks? Well, like, so here's what I tend to do that I might get in trouble with uh, my agent for confessing to, but, like, I oftentimes will only plot myself out to the dark night of the soul like that moment where your hero has gotten into a position they cannot escape from, I will literally on purpose write myself into a corner to where there's, I can't imagine a way out and then I will have absolutely no plan and I'll force myself to like go into act three with a real feeling of panic because I want to have no way out. I want to now be in my character's position of having to figure this out so it doesn't feel like there's an easy solution. I will on purpose like write myself a no solution um, dark night of the soul and force myself to then figure it out once it's already written. I did that with the Kill Club and I did that with Hunting Annabelle as well. Um, and I think I'm going to keep doing that. It was, it was, I felt like it made that, it made it scarier. I felt like, cause I was scared. I was like, I really don't know how I'm going to fix this. <laughs> like, <laughs> So I don't know if that's good, but that's I've been I've been ignoring Act Three until I've finished Act, uh, you know, all the way through Act Two. Well, real quick, Jeff, before you ask your question, um, the other thing is write yourself into corners because that's where all the great ideas really come from. Trying to get yourself out. Yeah, I've heard I that. think so. You know. Yeah. Why do you think readers are so fascinated with? Of really deeply flawed characters and unreliable narrators. I feel like we have, um, well, so there's a certain amount of, as a woman, wanting to write these flawed women in particular. Like with Jazz, I wanted to give a female character some of the things that we normally don't see women characters getting, like the ability to be flawed and to not be the perfect caretaker and to not have this you know, to not necessarily have made good decisions because a lot of times I think we need our female characters to be flawed in ways that we still find kind of acceptable. You know what I mean? Like they're, you know, you can't have a character be a bad mother or you can have a character, you know, be, you know, slutty. Like you can have her be a little bit edgy, but not that much. Like, you know, there's so many rules around that. And with Jeff, I really wanted to kind of take a role that would normally be given to like 
maybe a more of a male protagonist and give it to a woman protagonist and see kind of play with that a bit. And I think we're interested in characters that are not, um, you know, not so shiny, not so superhero-y. We're looking for people where we could put ourselves in their position, and it would be hard to do that with someone who's so um, noble, right? Like, we need the character to feel rough enough that we can imagine ourselves as them. Very nice. I like that. So which character in the book The Kill Club kind of surprised you when you were finished and had maybe a bigger role than you had maybe anticipated when you started writing? Huh, that's really that's a really good question. You know, the Thank character you. of Sophia in The Kill Club is really that is a really close character to my heart. I feel like Sophia, like, I feel like Jazz isn't every woman in that, you know, she's going through things that I went through as a poor, you know, person growing up poor. Like, you know, there's a lot of people who are going through what Jazz is going through. But Sophia is the one where I feel like, you know, every mother, every person who's been in, in a situation where, you know, they feared for their child or they feared for anything related to motherhood, I just felt like Sophia was one that, I don't know. Originally, when I put her in, you know, she was one of the characters in the Kill Club, right? Like, she was just one of the of the people in the book. And by the time I finished writing it, she had just become so real to me. And I had just, I just, you know, her story really, you know, I don't know, it really hit me in a personal way. And her, uh, the person she's in the Kill Club for, Charles, who is probably everyone's uh, you know, the least favorite <laughs> is actually, you know, based on two real guys kind of put together. And, um, yeah, so her story really kind of got me. And so did Nielsen. And Nielsen actually turned a bit more real in the writing than I had expected. You know, he was just like the cop. He was a little bit of like a plot device originally. Um, but as I sort of played with his and Patel's bond through the fact that they were both soldiers and there's a couple moments with him where he kind of cracks his veneer where, you know how he's so critical of that one character, Gonzalez, who just came back from leave after, because yep. her child had passed away. And he's so like, he's such a dick about it, right? But then he has this one moment where he says like, you know, I've also lost people. You don't see me crying. And I just kind of got this like, I, I realized this like whole man thing up. was like this. Right. It's like, it's like the old man up kind of, kind of attitude. <laughs> yes. But there's like so much pain underneath that that he can't deal with either. Mm-hmm. And so when I was writing that scene, I was kind of like, okay, now I understand you, Nielsen. And he actually became quite human to me by the time I finished, you know, draft 47. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm wondering, be, be, <laughs> because what the Kill Club talks about a little bit, and with the way publishing is rapidly changing, do you think Kill Club would have been successful, say, five years ago? I was surprised it sold now, to be honest. I mean, publishing <laughs> is changing, but like... Every author's answer. Not... <laughs> well, like, adult thriller, you know, crime fiction is, is a more... Like, for example, I also write in young adult, and that's like, I would say, more progressive, right? It's like younger, like, you know, everybody's more progressive, but... Adult crime fiction, you know, we still have a lot. It's, you know, a little bit more old school sometimes. And so, yeah, I wasn't sure. I mean, I have a gay main character. You know, she's an inner city main character. She's not your typical leading lady. You know, she's maybe not, quote, unquote, relatable to maybe a more suburban middle-of-the-road reader. And that's always something I struggle with because, like, 
I'm a woman, I'm supposed to write, be writing to women, and it's just kind of like a difficult thing to feel like, am I really like the right kind of woman writer? Am I really like writing to women's issues in the way that people want me to? Or You know, it's like confusing and yeah. tangled. And, um, yeah, I don't know if Kill Club would have sold five years ago. I mean, I had a feeling with Kill Club like I had sneaked it through because it was the second book on my two-book deal, my editor who had acquired Hunting Annabelle was, you know, also a queer woman. And I felt like when she picked up the Kill Club, I, w- I really wondered, like, if someone else would have picked this up or if it was, like, that she was, in- you know, trying to, like, encourage there to be more stories like that. I don't know. I really don't know. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I, and, I, and, you know, and that's something that, um, that's probably the first time I've ever heard that before like the editor kind of just is i guess just fell in love with it that way because of the of the storyline and the characters and that's kind of what pushed it through but on that level and it's like i want to think that i you know i don't know if you do this if you like have this in your life I but like lot. i think it's as a writer you're always looking for ways to like invalidate that it's good you're always like well maybe she just picked it up because because she sure. thought it would be cool to have a queer story or like maybe she just picked it up because like it's hard. I don't know. I tend to always like try to find the way that the reason I why. I think we have a tendency you know, to overthink things sometimes. Yeah. And just thinking and like, overthinking no, and overthinking. I thought it was a good thriller. It's not, a, it's yeah. not that deep. <laughs> you know? yeah. When really, you know, you just kind of use your gut, I think, more than anything. Mm-hmm. And I think, that's what, I think that's what really resonates to the readers more is seeing more of Wendy Heard in the books instead of just everything always – just being so fake and made up. Yeah, this book was really hard that way. You know, this book was more personal. It was in my hometown, you know, and I had a lot of feelings about writing working class L.A. You know, it's not the L.A. You grew up in L.A. and it's like you're walking down, like, okay, for example, my high school is where they filmed that 90s movie Clueless. Oh, really? And they filmed the Power Rangers there and they filmed all kinds of things there. And, like, but my high school is in Van Nuys. So it's in, like, it has, like, you know, barbed wire and, like, you know, uh, we had race riots sometimes. And, like, I remember us all, like, having to walk out. And there was, like, a stabbing. Like, this is my high school. like, L.A. high school. But, like, sometimes they would clear us all out and, like, rope off the quad and then bring in clueless actresses. And then you'd be in Spanish and there'd be Alicia, Alicia Silverstone out there. You know, and then you weren't allowed to go out there, right? Like, they, they'd right. bring in extras to, like, be the, the students the that were supposed yeah. to be in there. And that's just how it is growing up here. It's like you're walking on the street to work. Somebody yeah. you can't walk to work because it's roped off because they're filming something, and they've well, brought like in Well, like today, downtown, where we both kind of work, mm-hmm. there's a parking lot right across the street where I am, right where I work, and they've, they've, the, the hooking lot's been closed because all this is the star wagons and everything else, you know, and you know they're filming because you know when it's mm-hmm. filming in L.A. I mean, then you've got the security guard and the catering and everything out yeah. there, and you're like, well, you know, right. that just kind of screws everything up right there because you just shut down a major parking lot for everybody, and then you have to – and that's right on Figueroa. I mean, a major street in downtown L.A. Yeah. They film, they film on Figueroa a lot. It's weird. They do. But, yeah, they do. I, I think it's because it's like... the, they get the good downtown feeling. Yeah. But there is this feeling of, like – I think growing up here and being poor here and just being like, get out of the way. You're not like the kind of people we want in this shot, you know? And so writing the LA that 
is more like intimately familiar to those people who are from here is maybe a little bit of a vulnerable feeling because if it's not like trauma porn with gangsters in South LA or, you know, uh, you know, ritzy like clueless, it's not really something that people seem very interested in observing or reading about. So it's a little bit vulnerable. Well, uh, just for the record, uh, whenever you see a film that's set in Seattle, it's all Vancouver. So just except for you know uh, the the shot of the space needle. So, but now Jeff, but you, you know if because I did the same thing. I mean, when we first got to LA, I mean, of course it was like, okay, where was Halloween filmed? Let's go see that street. All right, you know, where was the Fast Times at Ridgemont High High School? You got to see that one. All right, the Grease High School. You know, you go around and you want to see these things where all these filming things were. You know, I went down to Panga Canyon just so I could see where Friday the 13th Part 4 was filmed. I mean, it was just stupid things like that. Yeah, so you moved here from somewhere else? Yeah, I moved here from Cincinnati about 12 and a half, almost 13 years ago. Oh, okay, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. A little different. <laughs> yeah. You know, and growing up in Ohio, where, where I grew up, I mean, California and L.A., of course, was for me, I mean, it was the Rose Bowl. You know, you see the Rose Bowl, and it was always sunny, and, you know, blah, 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 and, you know, it was always star-filled. And, of course, I was, you know, going through the 80s and Sunset Strip, and I never had a chance to come out here during the heyday, but that's all the music I listen to. You know, to this day, I still listen to all that. So, you know, that's, that, that's the one thing that I'm like, oh, my God, you know, Start, you know, Sunset Strip and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, and I just talked to Deborah Goodrich-Royce, who was in, you know, April Fool's Day, and she just wrote a book. And I've been in contact with Deborah Foreman about uh, business stuff and website, you know, and Deborah Foreman was Valley Girl. So it just, like, brings back all that 80s stuff for me and how L.A. was always like, oh, that's L.A. <laughs> it's funny to hear uh, how come L.A. Up to the rain. is perceived from, like, outside, right? Yeah. Like, it's like a funny feeling because – it's nerdy. Yeah, it's I mean, not. you lived it, but for everybody else, it's like, wow, you know, you get to see where this was filmed and this was filmed. You know, I mean, we were just down in Chinatown, and you go see this on the side of the building, and it says, hey, this is where Rush Hour was filmed. And you go inside the, you know, of course, the Bonaventure. The Bonaventure Hotel has been filmed a thousand times, and, and you know, they still got that plaque yeah. near the elevator. It says, this is the elevator. It was in True Lies, and it's just like, wow, that's so cool, you know, because it was all glitz and glamour to us in Midwest. Now, do you still feel like it's glamorous that you li- now that you live here? Do you feel do you feel like the glamour has been lost? No, I'm like now stop. It's annoying. <laughs> you know, it kind of goes away fast when I when I worked in Century City and then moved to downtown in Century City. It's like they're always filming and always around. And then we lived in Calabasas, and then you would just see the stars out, and you would just see them out, and blah 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 blah. blah and then, you know, uh, and and they and you realize, oh, you know, they're just like regular people. Yeah, you've seen them on TV, but. Wow, they kind of look old. <laughs> so, like I so. worked food service forever. I've worked every food service job, like starting at thirteen and forever. And I worked at like a bunch of places that were takeout funnels for the studios and stuff. So oh, yeah. I have a healthy, healthy loathing for celebrities and celebrity culture. Yeah, it's just weird. <laughs> yeah, but it is. It's just weird, and I think that a lot of people. You know, unless you live here, uh, like I said, you, you get a lot of a lot of fanboy stuff when people come out here, and they would, and when they come out here for the first time, friends of ours, they're like, "Got to go, you know, the Hollywood thing. You got to do this, and got to do that." And you're like, "God, just put them on a train and let them go on their own now." But you know, you, 
you know, you got to do the Santa Monica and the Third Street Promenade, and you know, drive around Malibu and blah, blah, you know, the same old, same old. That Places that you never actually take for granted. Know. Like I've never been to Grauman's ever. Oh yeah, I've only been in front of. I've just been in front of it as a tourist, and that's it a couple times. Yeah. It just seems like really. It seems like a lot. I'm like, yeah, that seems complicated. Yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I'm always visiting Disneyland if I'm down by you guys. So yeah, but that's right. further mm-hmm. south. Yeah. Yeah, in Anaheim. Yeah. Um, and for the record, um, I think Seattle's latest claim to fame is there's this chili diner that makes really great chili that uh, Guy Fieri came to visit. So <laughs> there we go. And the first Starbucks. Don't forget that. Well, that's true. Um, I was hoping um, I could ask you about your podcast, um, Unlikable Female sure. Characters. How did that start up, and um, what do you guys talk about on there? Oh, horrible, unlikable woman things. Um, no, it started because we, the three of us knew each other, and we had, I don't know, which is kind of like a funny idea. We had we have an interest in exploring unlikable women in books and film and what it means to be unlikable. You know, this idea of what um, women feel very pressured to, uh, it's like an expectation that we're constantly reading the room and adapting and making everybody comfortable. And it's sort of fascinating to see people's reactions to certain female characters. And people will have these like very strong reactions, negative reactions to some female characters. Um, and it's, it's, it's interesting. It's like, there is always that question, like when people have a, this visceral sort of reaction to a female character, it's like, if if she had the exact same characterization, but she were male, you know, they wouldn't react that way. And so there's this curiosity to try to unpack, like, what is this? Like, what is this idea of being likable? It's something that women authors get asked a lot, like last time at Bouchercon, it was a question that got asked on every woman, uh, like woman-centric panel, like every panel that had, was full of women. Someone from the audience would ask about uh, what's up with so many unlikable female characters in fiction right now. Why are there so many unlikable women? Can you give us like an and, example uh, of who you of who you talk about? Please. Of like of an unlikable female character? Yeah, like one that, that so just kind of have a frame of reference because for me, an unlikable female character is Mommy Dearest. Right. Oh, that chick yeah. scared She's me. Epic. Man. Yeah. That's a good one. But like okay, the good. so for example, um we talk we've talked about Amy from Gone Girl. We've um Vanessa Lilly has a book out called Little Voices that came out this last year and has a woman struggling with postpartum uh depression and like there's just a lot of you know, I wouldn't even say unlikable, but like it seems like every time you have a woman uh character who's who is who they there are some women characters who just rub people a certain way and make people say that word unlikable and it makes us wonder why like what about this character is unlikable and so like I use Vanessa Lily as an example I didn't find her main character unlikable but she was talking about this with me at Thriller Fest just like everybody is getting acid about this lately the last year or two like about am I allowed to make an unlikable woman and then what is that um and then so what is what is this pressure to make women likable and what does likable even look like so yeah so we've been just sort of exploring that exploring some of our favorite um our favorite characters that we think are good examples of interesting unlikable female characters and sort of i guess reclaiming it a little bit you know like i think it's cool when women characters aren't uh aren't as obviously existent to to make people comfortable but they're interesting you know i like that so it's it's a fun exploration 
you know, and we do a lot of joking. Like we recently did an episode where we read um, our favorite bad male-authored sex scenes. Oh, that my God, really there's fun. a lot of those. <laughs> <laughs> we uncovered a lot of, like, misunderstandings, just uh, just straight-up yeah, misunderstandings of, of everything from anatomy to what a woman is to what breasts just even are, you know, is just amazing. Right. So we have a lot of fun. Yeah. Now, do you ever – I mean, so do you think that if you, that if you had a male on the show as a guest – do you think that their reason for unlikable would be different than a woman's reason for an unlikable character? Yeah, men and women tend to have a really different lens that they see these things through, you know, and sometimes I think men, you know, will sort of clumsily like want to write an unlikable female protagonist and they'll end up, we have this joke of um, like men will sometimes write the like the assassin, you know, and they'll end up like over-characterizing, the over-character, character character is high character help me out here characterizing I, like, I, I think right characterizing right like yeah, overdoing okay. the yeah. characterization to where it's like almost a caricature of an unlikable woman okay. um it's something that i think sometimes just like when women write bad guys we sometimes struggle with the nuance because it's not you know it's not our gender so we're kind of struggling to get it exactly right so yeah we talk about that sometimes and, and i have i have chatted about this with a lot of men like i did a a podcast with um, Angel Luis Colon, the, uh, he calls it the bastard title. We did a, like an episode where we were talking about this. It's, it's cool. It liked, I like hearing, um, you know, men's perspective on, on what they think is likable and unlikable in women because it kind of points to the other side of it, right? It's like we, all I know is the pressure I feel, you know, but men can speak to what they've been told as well, right? So it's like two sides of the same coin. Well, Wendy, where is the best place for everyone to find out all the information about you? Is it just your website, wendyherd.com? Yeah, and I'm on all the socials. Uh, my handle everywhere is Wendy D. Hurd, like D as in David, Wendy D. Hurd. So I'm, like on the, I'm on the Twitters and I'm on the Instas and I'm on the Facebooks. Although, man, the Facebooks are hard. I have a hard time with Facebooks. I do try, though. Yeah, I know. I get you. There's a lot there. There's definitely Point. a lot there. But, you know, I mean, I, I guess you got to do them all. You know, I'm not a big – I do I do Facebook and Twitter, and I don't do Instagram because nobody wants to see this anyway. So it's like I, I'm not putting <laughs> that out there. <laughs> I do the Instas, you know. you gotta you got to do the millennial Insta stuff. <sighs> my God, that's a lot. I go back to the 80s. My, my daughter swears by it. Yep. Yeah. I want to go back to the 80s. I want to go back to the 80s. I want to live here for like two years during the Sunset Strip time just to see what it was like. You know, there was a time, I was thinking about this, when authors did not have to see any reviews online. The only reviews of yours you right. ever see is if someone freaking mailed it to you. Can you imagine the glory of never having Senior any review. contact with what people thought of your book? And now you see everything instantaneous. <laughs> your book is out, and you're like, wow, thanks, um, I guess. I mean, you know, you see some of that, and it kind of brings you down a little bit. But just remember, you, you know, 100 great ones is still much better than one bad one. That's true. And some of the bad ones are just truly enjoyable. Like when I get people mad about the fact that there are gay people in my book and in the world, it sends me a little bit of joy every time. You know, yeah. And it, I think, and I, and I think there was one time I was talking to somebody and it, they were one of those, you know, man up. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, dude, listen, I think it was about, you know, um, like a gay football player, like, oh, you can't have like gay football players. I'm like, listen up, man. I said, 
there's probably, what, 25% of the population is gay in the United States, so one out of every four people is gay. So you don't think that on a 53-man roster that you haven't already had gay football players? I'm like, stop, shut up. I mean, you're just being ignorant. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and I just, so, and, but but the problem is you can't nail it through their iron skull. Sometimes it's just like it's just like you know why am I even talking to you? I, I can use my I, I'm wasting words and I only have so many left in my life. <laughs> yep, we can just yeah. cry. They can cry and they can cry. I know. I get you. <laughs> Well, Wendy, hey, we want to thank you so much for coming on. It's been absolutely fabulous to talk to. Um, the Kill Club is the latest book. It is out now, so you can go to Amazon and you can pick up your copy. Um, I, is it an audio form? Yeah. It's on okay, all so, the you can, so it's on Audible. Good. So you, in whatever format you want to get it in, uh, you can get it now, and of course, and then go back and check out Hunting Annabelle. And um, again, Wendy, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. I really enjoyed talking to you guys. Good, thanks again. We have to and get you back uh, when the next book comes out. Which is called She's right. Too Pretty to Burn, Winter 21, because that's on the website. So there we go. Yep, that's my next one. Nice. All right, well, hey, congratulations, and we will talk with you soon. And uh, we might catch up with you at Thriller Fest if you're going to be there this year, because both Jeff and I will both be there. Oh, yeah, I'm going to be there. I would love to see you guys. Thank you so much. Good. Oh, yeah. really awesome. fun. We'll definitely Thank stop you by and a... say hello and shake some hands. All right, <laughs> sounds good. All right, you have a good one. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.